When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Love Tennis Podcast. I'm James Gray and I'm here with George Belshaw, Metro.co.uk. Yes, we're back again. Uh, it's our first since arriving on iTunes, excitingly. So you may have downloaded this through iTunes. Woo! Make sure to subscribe, leave us a review, all sorts of things that you have to do on iTunes. Only good reviews, though, please. Uh, yeah, only good reviews. Bad reviews, um, email them to george.belshaw. <laughs> or just DM him. Just DM him or go around to his house. I think he lives in North London somewhere. Uh, I'm sure you'll find him. He's very tall. Um, <laughs> yes, we are, we are on iTunes. We are legit. Uh, if you're not following us on Twitter, by the way, because I hear some of you aren't, it's at Love Tennis Pod. It's not difficult. You really should be. It would be helpful. Um, someone you probably are following on Twitter is Andy Murray. And he's back. Andy Murray's back. He's going to win the league. <laughs> Beat David Goffin, didn't he, George? And I hear Goffin was absolutely dreadful. Yeah, Goffin wasn't great. Pretty much turned up for about three games at the end of the match. Yeah, he was. Sick. That's the wrong end of the match to turn up at. Yeah, I mean, it depends which three games in the match. I think if they're the last three games you need to win to win the match, that's quite a good time to turn up. But, okay. Um, yeah, no, he was pretty pretty poor. And understandably, I won't, I won't sit here and tee off on Goffin because he did just fly from the Labour Cup straight to uh, you know southeast China. And Murray obviously had a match before him. Uh, in So getting used to the conditions, and they were pretty different from out in the Labour Cup. So... We won't, we won't be too harsh on him and we'll focus more on the kind of positive positive Andy Murray. Um, obviously, this podcast will come out probably around when he's playing Fernando Vadasco tomorrow. Mm. Um, but regardless, getting into the quarterfinals of an event is a positive. Mm-hmm. Um, it's largely irrelevant, these results, right? Like, it, it doesn't really absolutely. make a difference because he's ending his season next month once he's played in... Next week, actually. Next week, exactly, next week. yeah. Well, it's also next month, George. That's how calendars work. It's October next month. September has flown wow. by for George because he's been all over the world. <laughs> he's been to Scotland twice. He's run a 5K. <laughs> thinks he's on top of the world. Yeah, I, I'm about to sit here and criticise Andy Murray's physicality, and I, I've barely recovered from my 5K on <laughs> Sunday. It's Thursday now. So, yeah, be... George, you need to be better at fitness. I think that's clear. It's like when I asked your, one of your colleagues, is George any good at tennis? I went, yeah, he's got a big serve. <laughs> about it doesn't surprise me <laughs> not, need. not a five That's setter John, man it? yes quite so this is a good thing for Murray look we know that really all of this year is just about next year really it's sort of random collection match he, he looks like he's still doing a lot of physical training right yeah and I think um the comparison I've now got in my head and I'm gonna push uh, regardless whether it's right or not, is that Andy Murray is going to do a kind of Serena Williams now. So, you know, when she came back from pregnancy earlier this year, she realised, right, I'm not really at the races here to compete. And she went on a big five-week training block uh, at the Moritoglu Academy and just fitness, 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 build up, build up, build up. Because, you know, when Murray was at the US Open, we were kind of thinking, right, there's no way he's going to get beyond, like, three five-set matches. Mm. So there's a big kind of fitness gap he needs to build up. Um, he'll probably want to rest a little bit because, you know, he hadn't played for six, uh, 
a year and then has had a, you know, on and off six months playing. But I think after that brief period of rest, I think he needs a really long preseason that's very fitness focused. Um, and yeah, I think that side of conditioning will hopefully get him ready for the Australian Open. Keeping expectations pretty low, to be honest. Um, I think we'll be looking at Wimbledon next year as the first slam we'll realistically start saying, can Andy Murray go deep here? Um, but yeah, it's exciting times. We'll see whether he can enjoy a Serena-esque transformation after a five-week training block. He served 15 odd aces against Goffin. It did. It looked like he was playing pretty aggressive. I mean... Did you see any evidence of this new game style we think he has to play because he doesn't have the grinding movement that he always used to have? He certainly did serve well in terms of first serves. His second serve was kind of back to the days where players used to just tee off on it, particularly at the end of the match. Mm. Um, so, you know, there's things to work on. The serve was always going to be one of the toughest things to bring straight back when you've not been playing for a while, particularly with the hip as well. I think kind of pushing off that movement, you can maybe be a little bit worried um whereas you can play a little more conservative the rest of the time um but yeah i i don't know it, it it's a tough one for him to to really know where he's at in terms of his game in terms of the long run i think we need to see what he comes back as in 2019 rather than being too worried about his game style right now um but yeah i think he's a little more aggressive perhaps and just a brief word on goffa i know you wanted to focus on the positivity but I mean, he's gone off a cliff, hasn't he? I know he's still number 11 in the world, but there just doesn't seem to be a lot of form in Goff at the moment. Every time he comes into a big match, there just seems to be something not quite there, no? Yeah, I, I, I do kind of feel a bit sorry for him because he seems to have had, over the last couple of years, every time he comes into a really big patch of form, he suddenly seems to just have like a bad injury. You know, last year, the, the French Open, he tripped over the back of the... Kind of yeah, it was surface, sort of matting the at the yeah, back exactly. of the court and he like slid over and did his ankle. Yeah, and then he was in great form and then it took him to the ATP finals where he beat you know Federer and Nadal back-to-back mm. pretty much uh, in the ATP finals, having never beaten them before. And then there's just always like a little injury. He had like a freak eye injury this year as well. Um, there's always just little things that seem to kind of halt his momentum. Um, and I, I don't really understand this one. I don't really understand exactly what's wrong with him. Maybe he's had like a little niggle, a bit of wear and tear. Um, but he, he doesn't look like a guy who holds injuries well. He looks like quite a slight bloke, right? Yeah, I think so. I mean, he, you know, he's obviously picked up a couple of freak ones that I wouldn't normally count as um, real injuries in the traditional sense mm. of ones that have picked up, like Kane Ishikori, for example. Yeah. He, he just doesn't look physically strong at the minute. He doesn't look particularly confident. Um, and it won't help your confidence losing to the world number 300 and whatever Andy Murray is. Even even though he is Andy Murray, you know, that's a match Goffin should be looking at and thinking, I'm going to win this. So another good news for British tennis this week. Uh, Team GB has been given a wild card into the brand new Davis Cup World Cup of Tennis thing. Davis Cup 2.0. Davis Cup, is that what we're going to call it? Okay. I think so. So what this actually means, we don't have to play a qualifier in February. Presumably we'll play some sort of international friendly instead. I don't even know if we'll do that, to be honest. Tennis I don't know. Is, tennis is tennis, why bother? I'm not sure. I, I think they'll probably... I don't know. We'll find out. They've not said they are going to do that. I might be wrong, but I yeah. wouldn't have thought they'll bother. So so it means that they'll go straight into the, uh, into the Davis Cup next year. It's going to be... It's hard to know what to call that bit, isn't it? Is it the Davis Cup finals? Because it's all the Davis Cup still. Yeah, I, I don't really know. Maybe the, we should call it Davis Cup qualifying and then Davis Cup finals. Yeah, that would make the should finals. Yeah, the finals? we'll call it the Davis Cup finals. So TGB are straight into the Davis Cup finals, as they are now called. It has been decreed by the Love Tennis <laughs> podcast. That's, I mean, that was as we expected, wasn't it? Wasn't it? 
that we'd get a wild card? Yeah. I didn't think so. I was I thought Switzerland were going to get one okay. personally. Um but then the ITF showed a rare moment of clarity in terms of how they were giving out a wild card and a kind of a fair system which, you know, is often beyond them in terms of uh, sanity. So they've just gone for the last two winners who aren't already qualified. So Argentina won it in 2016. Britain won it in 2015. Um, and then they've added in a few other things. They were talking about kind of travelling fan involvement, which, you know, Britain are pretty good at. And mm. anyone who's watched a Del Potro match knows <laughs> yeah. uh, they, they get pretty good travelling support as well. Okay. So they're the criteria they gave. I think that's fair enough. Mm. Um what it does mean is that they have run the risk of this brand new format not having Roger Federer involved. And Djokovic. And Djokovic, for that matter. So Switzerland are going to take on Russia in a qualifier. And that's and, tough. Yeah, I mean, that's not easy. I mean, uh, who, who's he going to come up against then? Hatchinov, I mean, Rublev. Ha- Hatchinov and Rublev both got ability to beat the likes of Federer. Medvedev, there's depth there. I mean, that that looks like almost, almost like Russia. I mean, they're not going to be favourites because they're playing Federer, but... Well, if Federer even turns up, I well, mean, this is a point. Issue. This is a point you were making off air that essentially Federer has been told he doesn't have to play Davis Cup now. To the layman, essentially, in order to play at the Olympics, you had to play a bit of Davis Cup. That was that was that was you know without going into technicalities, that was the case. Now you're telling me that's not the case anymore. Well, uh, David Haggerty, who's the uh, chief of ITF, basically said, well. Normally, you would have to play a bit of Davis Cup, but we're pretty much happy to relax the rules because it's Roger Federer. So if he <laughs> wants to play the Olympics, he can. Um, the I mean, the other issue with Federer would be he probably wouldn't be that keen to turn up to that Davis Cup tie if he goes deep in the Australian Open because it's very, very, very close after that. So Djokovic may also find himself... I mean, imagine if it was a Djokovic-Federer Australian Open final. They both don't turn up to this qualification thing. Serbia and Switzerland lose. Um, I think Serbia playing Uzbekistan. Yeah, so I don't so... imagine, even without Novak Djokovic, I think Serbia would have a decent pop against Uzbekistan. Well, those Uzbekis gave us a go, and with that rousing national anthem on Uzbeki soil, who knows? <laughs> yes, they don't like it up on a cold, <laughs> wet Wednesday night in Baku. Or where, I mean, I don't, it's not Baku, because that's in Azerbaijan. I couldn't I, name you a single I place could, in Uzbekistan. I literally couldn't name an Uzbeki capital. Uh, I'll have a producer look it up, but I really, I, I have absolutely no idea. Tashkent, they tell me. Tashkent apparently is the capital of Uzbekistan. Right, cool. So great knowledge. The question is, do the Serbians like it on a cold, wet Wednesday night in Tashkent? Possibly not. Without Djokovic as well, who knows? I mean, that yeah. could be pretty tough. So essentially, Davis Cup organisers are desperately crossing their fingers that Federer and Djokovic either play or that their compatriots qualify and join Croatia, France, Spain, US, Argentina, Great Britain, and then a number of other qualifiers. Right and now, I'd say Russia will beat Switzerland, by the way. I, I don't think that's an outrageous an outrageous conclusion, Especially George. Especially if they put out the same team they put out for the last one. Now, where are they going to be meeting if they do uh, in da- da- the Davis Cup finals? Are going to be... Oh. I thought you were going to test me who was home and away for Switzerland. There, oh, no, but... certainly not. I'm gonna, I've am gonna. i been told there's a bee in your bonnet about the Davis Cup being in Madrid. There's always a bee in my bonnet about something. I've worked a lot this month. I'm quite grouchy. And today, this is what I'm moody about. Today's George Belshaw <laughs> rant is Davis Cup locations. So that uh, Family Guy episode, grind my gears. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> What's really grinding your gears, George? Um, I won't do a Peter Griffin impression because it's good. not good. No, um, that's a good idea. Uh, but I... I'm annoyed, not in the choice of Madrid, 
you know, I, I said on the last podcast, I spoke a bit about the logistics of hosting this tournament in Madrid and, in, you know, in general anywhere, to be honest. I think Madrid's a solid location for the first one. What I don't really like is it staying in the same place two years in a row. Mm. I think when you're getting rid of the majority of the home and away aspect that the best nations will be involved in, mm. um, you know, it'd be nice for this thing to move around. And I'd, I'd kind of come to the understanding that it was going to be in Madrid in 2019 and then Lille in 2020 and then go over to the States or wherever. And I just, I don't really like the thought of it being in one place and staying there. I think it should be a moving, rotating thing. You know, the Labour Cup shown last weekend what a nice thing it is to take it to cities that don't normally have big atp tennis events Mm. and i think just keeping it in madrid that's already got a masters 1000 event fair enough for the first year because of the logistical nightmare but to then keep it there the second year i I just think that's rubbish to be honest and do you think there's an element of sort of trying to placate some of tennis's bigger players can't think can't think of any specific spanish players but i'll ask the question i'm I'm posing to is it to do with making sure rafa nadal turns up for the first two years i mean look i i I don't know i mean you can't see them putting it in belgrade or basel and them having the facilities to do it so i guess if there's anyone you're going to give it to then Mm. from that perspective it would be rafa um i i honestly think it's because they've not thought thought it through and they've realized holy cow we actually can't put this on anywhere because you need this many indoor courts um when i was first speaking about it people were saying rotterdam's the only one they could think of um that has enough indoor courts to kind of make it a success and even because the time of year dictates it has to be indoor yeah pretty much so you know and rotterdam the question is do they have enough big courts big show courts madrid does have that it's got three big roofed courts so I think that's why more than anything, but I don't really like it. I think, you know, if you're going to stick to this sort of format, you bloody well think about it before you pitch it and change the entire Davis Cup. Hmm. You know what I would do, George? I'd have it in Britain. Uh, <laughs> and I'd have it... Outdoors. No, no, indoors. But there are so many different arenas you could use. You use the Rico Arena at Coventry. Terrific indoor arena. We've had a Davis Cup tie there before. Beat the Russians, I think. Um, there, there are two arenas, as you well know, because you visited them both the other weekend in Glasgow. Um, NEC, NIA in Birmingham, for yeah, example. There's big arenas. Indoor, uh, well, there's an indoor, you say, O2 Arena, obviously, yeah. in London. You know, one of the biggest indoor sta- tennis stadiums in the world. Centre court, even if you want to be really rogue. Well, yeah, but then you have to change surface. <laughs> I think players, that would be fun. Yeah, uh, all well, four surfaces. How to really Britain. annoy the players. It's just like, yeah, you're going to play on all four surfaces. Is that right? Yeah, good, great. No, I, I think in the sort of medium term, you could look at going to a country and say, okay, we'll do it, you know, as they do in the Football World Cup. You can't be too diverse in terms of geography, but you could certainly be a couple of places within a couple of hundred miles. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, I think the bigger problem compared to the World Cup will be the close proximity of the matches. So mm-hmm. you'd need to pretty much have each group in the same city. But I don't see why that couldn't work. Yeah, maybe. exactly. I mean, that certainly has to do with some of the T20 tournaments and stuff in cricket. So There you go. Yeah. You should pitch that to the ITF. It's, oh. not, it's not too late for them to change <laughs> their mind. It's never too late for the ITF to change their mind. <laughs> Might not even be in November next year, so <laughs> who knows. This format, as it is, now that we have a better idea of who's going, who's there, who's the favourite? Ooh, that's a good question. I, th- I think Britain have a pretty good shot with uh, Andy Murray, Carl Edmund... Jamie Murray and Andy Murray in doubles. If Andy mm. Murray recovers to anywhere near the level he was, 
I don't see why Britain couldn't go out there and win this thing. Spain will also be up there. Yeah, I think of course Spain will be close. I mean, they've just got they've got weird depth. You know, the likes of Carreño, Booster, and Ramos Vinola. Like, they're not going to win massive matches, but they're going to win a lot of round robin matches, right? But what I would say about Spain is, if it is going to be indoor hard, which I think it is, yeah, that won't suit Spain as well as it would Britain. I don't think. No, I would agree with if that. If Novak's there for Serbia, you'd expect him to win all of his, you know, matches, mm. and same with Federer. So then, you know, as soon as you've got a player who can turn up and win all your matches, that's a big boost. Yeah, exactly. Um, but I think I think Britain have got pretty good strength and depth, pretty good on that sort of surface, particularly Murray. Um, yeah. Yeah, so I, I, I'd go with us, actually. Oh, there we go, George. Not one-eyed <laughs> at all. I'm sort of thinking there's an element of, uh, of a, a strong US team. You, you could say that, you know, we're more than a year down the line. The likes of Francis Tiafoe might finally be able to show a bit more ability. Jack Sock and doubles is a great man to have, as that's we well know. Exactly. That's not remember how important doubles is. So I would say the US have got a good shout, and I wouldn't mind seeing the tournament go out to the US. It's, it seems like now that we've sort of got a good idea of exactly how it's going to work, it, it it feels more real. And it to me anyway, you know, seeing flags in places and teams in places, it feels a bit more like a real thing and, and as though it might actually have some merit. And we've qualified. And crucially, we're going to be there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Unfortunately, it's not the only major tennis tournament being inaugurated. Or certainly looks like it might not be. The new Majesty Cup tournament with a winner-takes-all pot of £7.5 million prize money. Is this really going to happen? I'd completely forgotten we'd agreed to talk about this. And now (laughs) I'm going to have to tee off twice. What's going on? (laughs) George Belshaw's second (laughs) rant of the day. Um, Yeah, this is a very, very stupid idea. (laughs) Go on, George. Get off the fence, mate. (laughs) Look, we're we're talking about last week. The Labour Cup potentially like limiting events like in uh, St. Petersburg or whatever. Um, you know, th- these sort of smaller events that don't, you know, they-, they struggle to survive unless kind of decent names occasionally turn up or whatever in terms of giving out good prize money and whatever. If you suddenly just stick in the opportunity for a player to win seven million in a week, wherever you stick that in the calendar, you know, no one's going to start turning up to these weaker events that they're kind of sudden shot of limelight but realistically who's going to win that Federer Djokovic Nadal or Murray or Vavrinka and and what's the point why would you turn up to that player if you're not in the top 10 who's turning up to this 64 players none of you are getting paid apart from the winner well oh sorry you're playing in the generation of the big four good luck well the other side of the coin is that potentially seven and a half millions of guys who turn over huge numbers of millions of pounds of prize money every year anyway. They're probably not going to do it. There's no ranking points. There's no secondary benefits for them. So then you might say, well, actually, for the world's, you know, top 20 minus the top four, this is a massively worthwhile idea. I, w- I would agree with that if I genuinely believe the top guys wouldn't turn up because, you know, seven and a half million for one week's work when you're in your mid-30s looking towards the back end of your career, reducing your schedule anyway, I think they probably would turn up. Um you know, and if they don't turn up, will that pot be seven and a half million? Probably not. Hmm. It will get <laughs> rapidly reduced. I'm and this thinking. is all coming from Gerard Piquet's investment group, Cosmos, of course. So yeah. this is very much what the sort of natural progression of tennis's own success is that people come in and want a piece of the pie, right? So we shouldn't be surprised. The problem is that it's coming at the same time as the new ATP Team Cup in terms of you know the the era that we're yeah. 
initiating them. It comes at the same time as the new World Cup of Tennis, or Davis Cup 2.0, as we're going to call it. So it, it seems to cloud things from a point of view of, of fans or, or non-fans who are trying to get into tennis. It's only going to confuse them, right? Yeah, and uh, I mean, to be honest, I, I'd be amazed if that one got off the ground because, as I said, I think you'll struggle to get 64 people out there. Mm. I, I might turn up with my racket and give it a go. You know what, George? Well. I will happily watch from home. I'm not. I'm. I'm not going to fly out for it. Might be in Britain after your proposal. <laughs> All right, I'll go to Co- mm, Will I go to Coventry? If you've been, to- mm, <laughs> I might go to Coventry for it. The Rico Arena's got a good casino. I could go and clean up there, so that'd be a good reason. Um, let's hope that it doesn't come to George entering Gerard Piquet's 64-man winner-takes-all tournament. This is our first pod, of course, since the Labour Cup. The Ryder Cup of Tennis, which is appropriate given that we're recording this on the eve of the Ryder Cup of Golf, or as it's also known, the Ryder Cup, um, over in Paris. So let's look at predictions first of all. Yeah. So we, Mixed bag. We, yeah, we asked each other to predict top point scorers on each team. So if Team Europe you picked... I picked Novak Djokovic. And was roundly booed for doing so. And that proved correct as Novak Djokovic from his three matches won no points. Yeah. So that for you, George, is nil point. It's a shame because I was toying between him and Federer, and Federer obviously did okay. Yes, Federer obviously picked up four points from five matches. So you look like a bit of a fool now, but that's fine. It's not the first time, and it certainly won't be the last. I think I picked Alexander Zverev on the basis that I actually thought he might do really well into doubles and probably lost in doubles, but he did pick up three points from five matches and so came second overall on Team Europe. So, uh, you know, I'm, neither of us got it right, but I got it less wrong. Yeah. I'm claiming a win on that one, George. Okay. But. But? But. But. Give me a but. Go on, then. What's your but? Well, Team World. Team World. Who did you pick for top point scorer? Jack Sock. Jack mother effing Sock, who, as you predicted, lost his singles match on day one and then won three doubles matches because he's basically the best doubles player in the world now, right? Yeah, he's pretty... Pretty good, and it showed. You know, he's he's tactically brilliant. He's got great hands. Um, why is yeah. he? Why is he so much worse at singles? <laughs> That's and also because he did have a little bit of a freak run at the end of last year yeah. where he played some good singles tennis. So he must be able to do it. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you you get a lot of it. I, I actually I'm going to speak from personal experience here. Uh, my singles career died very, very quickly as a junior. Because, of course, you're famously the, the eighth best doubles player in the world. Of course, yeah. But, you know, I was I was a very strong doubles player at club level, mm. but I wasn't a very strong singles player because, it, you know, it, expo- it A, exposed more weaknesses in my game, and B, I just think it, there's a mentality to it that's obviously so much harder. And obviously, I know we're talking about the professional level, but there's uh, people who say in the LTA that, the same thing happened to Jamie Murray. Mm. Obviously, at a higher level, like he was a good singles player, higher rated than Andy. Yeah. But, um, when they were first coming through, mentally, just you know, got shot. He didn't. He couldn't bring himself to do it. And I think mentally, when you've got someone else on that court with you, it kind of shares the experience. It's a bit more fun, I yeah. think. A little less pressure. You know, it's not just on you if you lose a match. It's not just you being rubbish. Someone else can miss a volley, for example, at a key moment. And let's be honest, when it comes to singles, Sock has been very rubbish. <laughs> he lost This year, he lost eight consecutive matches. Between May and August, he didn't win a single match. 
I mean, if you read those names, they're not good. I names. mean, I will read those names: Philip Kohlschreiber, yeah, Taylor Fritz, yeah, Jurgen Zop, who's <laughs> not e- not even the best player in Estonia. Uh, Daniil Medvedev, Daniel Brands, and Matteo Berrettini. Daniil Medvedev again, and Hyun Chung, which is obviously a bit more respectable. So that is a pretty rotten run. But in that time, he was winning double titles left, right, and centre. So, you know, fair play to him. He's a pretty likable character as well, isn't he? I don't mind him. I think he's quite funny. Some people, the more traditionalists in tennis, kind of, I think they were looking at him and Kyrgios uh, over the weekend, like, what the heck are these two up to? They, I mean, they, of course, smashed Dimitrov and Goffin, which I think when that doubles pairing came out, I texted you and just went, Dimitrov and Goffin going to win a game, maybe? Yeah, it's, <laughs> maybe uh... two? I mean, they lost three and four, which is pretty respectable. Yeah, could have been. Given a lot they should have got absolutely smashed. Um, but looking at the Labour Cup, I mean, just from from the results point of view, it looked like it could be a real doing for Team USA when they lost three straight singles matches on day one. They lost two more on day two. Jack Sock pretty much kept them in it, and then Djokovic didn't even have to play. What you know, the final match, Djokovic Kyrgios should have been the the sort of high point really. Although I know Federer took him to pieces on day two. What did you make of it? What was your real highlight of the uh, of the tournament for you? I think you know it is fun seeing. Djokovic and Federer played doubles. Just that's something unique to the Labour Cup for mm. the ability to pull these top guys together. Even though they lost, no, they um, lost lost to Anderson and Sock, which yeah, is pretty. It's pretty close. You know, it was quite funny seeing Djokovic smack a ball at Federer. I quite enjoyed that. The sadist in me. Um, <laughs> but that's where you know we were talking about this like it's not an exhibition tournament. Now, what you're telling me is that it is. You know, for if if that's your assessment, they're the best bits of it. It is, and let's face it, for David Goffin, it had serious consequences because he played a singles match and a doubles match and then flew to China and was jet-lagged to heck and lost to Andy one-legged Murray. So, you know, if we're going to make the Labour Cup a real thing and it has a future, that doesn't look to me like the art, like it was a good advert for it. Maybe I'm being a little bit... Blase. Pie-eyed with the kind of love of the doubles pairings i think there were a lot of good matches a lot of close matches um the championship tiebreaker i hated playing i hated playing that when i was young and they Mm. were really drilling that into the british system when i was playing it used to be three sets and then they suddenly made that third one a championship tiebreaker right hate that thing Mm. much rather play a third set and so you know in atp events i'd rather it says a third set but to watch that kind of championship tiebreaker is pretty good pretty compelling um, and players are often splitting the first two sets, and it doesn't drag it out so much, and every point just feels like it suddenly counts. Well, for the record, of the 11 matches played at the Labour Cup this year, all bar two went, all bar three, sorry, went to a championship tiebreaker. Yeah, so, you know, that on another day, if World pick up a few more of those championship tiebreaks, they probably win the Labour Cup. Mm. But uh, as it was, they lost 13-8. That's 2-0 to Europe, mate. Yeah. So, yeah. An, early, an early bigger. So where are we going for the Labour Cup next year? Well, if we're going by your retirement prediction, it's uh, Roger Federer retiring. Roger Federer's <laughs> au revoir <laughs> to tennis. Um, yeah, I, looking at that, it looks a little bit bold, especially now that the, now that the ITF, ITF said he can walk into the Olympics in Tokyo, you know, no matter, even if he hasn't played tennis in a year. <laughs> okay, so I, I, I may look a little silly, but... Um, but you have to stick by it now. Yes, no, I will. Roger Federer is going to retire at 2019 at the Labour Cup. I'll see you all there in Geneva. It'll be fun. It is in Geneva, isn't it? I think so. It's somewhere in Switzerland. We've talked a lot about the future of the Labour Cup in theory, and we've now had two editions of it. Do we think it's got a future? 
had a really interesting chat with Todd Martin about this just randomly this oh, week. Sorry, uh, just, just hang on. Just get that name off the floor. <laughs> there we go. Big old clang. <laughs> oh, Tell me more about that. your lovely chat with Todd Martin. Well, there were other th- other things we talked about that will be released in due course, but I thought I'd do a quick Labour Cup wrap with Todd Martin and mm. kind of see what he thought about it. Uh, he obviously went to Chicago, watched uh, the Friday and Saturday, and he was kind of saying, look, you know, there are a lot of challenges facing this thing, you know, when Federer retires, that kind of transition, who will play when the kind of appeal of Federer is there, who will be going to these things. But when you look at the numbers of who's turned up to this thing, you know, you've had about, I think it was about 93 to 95,000 people turn up over the weekend to watch some tennis. It's pretty good. That's pretty, pretty high numbers. And I think there were about 16,000 in there to watch uh, Kyle Edmund play. Did it Was it TFO on the yeah. Friday? That's that's pretty remarkable, really. Sock, Sock. He played Sock. <clears throat> he played Sock. TFO played... Dimitrov. Dimitrov, that's it. Hmm. You've got a 16,000 attendance for those matches. Pretty pretty, pretty nothing matches, right? Yeah. Are you going to get that anywhere else? Probably not. And I know that's obviously the draw of the very, very best guys being there. And you might feel a little shortchanged <laughs> by getting those matchups. But I, I do think it's it couldn't have got off to a much better start in mm. terms of what's happened on court. Um, in terms of the fan involvement. I do think there are a lot of challenges facing it, though. So, you know, it's hard to be too excited about it. It's long-term future, but you can say it's got off to a pretty good start. Hmm. Do you look, think that? Yeah, I look, I like the idea, and I thought last year was so popular. I know how popular it was online, especially. So, yeah, I think it has merits, but if you're going to have, you know, these four different team competitions, if the Majesty Cup gets <laughs> off the line then I think you really have to worry and say that you don't need this. You don't need it to be like this. So, uh, But did it get in there first? That's going to be the other question. I don't, it... think, I don't think that'll be the answer. I think actually will be the answer is Roger Federer is running it, and that might make the difference. Yeah. I want to come back very briefly at the end because we uh, neglected to talk about our poll on Twitter and it's a good way to end because I would have plugged Twitter at the end anyway love tennis pod at love tennis pod follow us you should be we ran a poll uh, saying should Great Britain have or in fact should ITF been giving out wild cards to the new World Cup style event or should everyone have had to qualify it was pretty resounding no looks like wild cards are not popular I'll just run you through some of the points made James Griggle, it's dreadful. All Davis Cup fans I've talked to won't go to the finals. We want home and away ties. Change it back. You already know what 90% of fans think, says Darren Paik. We hate the new format and it didn't need that complete revamp. Time for tennis fans to come together and boycott this pathetic new event. Hashtag PK Cup. Sounds like the Labour Cup will survive at this rate. (laughs) Yeah, well, as will the Majesty Cup. Um, Swiss Trudy says, imagine if someone handed a wild card, wins the whole thing and your team had to qualify. Seems unfair. Um, I can see a lot of the points. I, I see that it seems unfair, but they have to guarantee the best teams are there, especially in the first year of a new format, right? Uh, if I was running it, I'd be handing out wild cards left, right and centre. <laughs> Serbia would have got one. Switzerland would have got one because they can't survive without Federer and Djokovic. Yeah, I, I, I think the wild cards haven't really helped them out in many ways because of this qualifying process as well. I think I don't understand why it's an 18-team tournament. That seems an awkward number to me. That doesn't really make sense. I don't like this whole one team is going to go through from each group and then two of the 
best placed second ones. I think it's going to be too easy for them all to tie off three mm. matches. We'll see. I might be wrong there. and yeah. It might be really exciting, but I'm skeptical. And the wildcards has just, just made it a bit awkward. Like, why not four groups of four teams? For so your, your problem actually isn't really an ethical one. It's more that it just makes things a bit more complicated. Yeah, well, I think there's a, you know, a problem with the wildcard in itself. Like, who do we give it to? I don't mind there being a wildcard for, like, the hosts, yeah. for example. I think that's a nice thing to do. That's something the World Cup do. Um, but if you just have one wildcard spot for the hosts, then that's then tricky to sort out these qualifying ties. Yeah. Who, you know, who loses Well, you have the hosts and the holders would be the traditional one, right? Okay, but at the minute, they've got four semi-finalists and then 24 teams going into 12. So... You then need yeah. to make it 26 teams into 13 and then stick with the host holders. George, and... you're, you're confusing and boring me. <laughs> Please stop. But anyway, I, th- I think just the addition of two wildcards isn't very helpful from a mathematical perspective, mm. if nothing else. Okay. Um, but really what these fans are saying is that they'd like the format the way it was before and they think it's unfair to give teams wildcards. Yeah, well, I mean, it's not very traditional for there to be a wild card in the Davis Cup. You have to work. George, sometimes it's really hard to make you have an opinion, you know? Okay, well, no, I don't like them. I don't like them. You think they're unfair? I I, I do think they're unfair, as well as logistically annoying. And you you know, I'm a a stickler for logistics. George loves logistics. Um, Speaking of logistics, our time has run out. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back next week ahead of the Shanghai Masters. We'll talk about Andy Murray's season as it's comes to an end. We'll talk about Maria Sharapova and Serena Williams as well and what year they've had. We'll also look at who might end as men's world number one. We'll see you then. Sports Social Podcast Network.